Proverbs chapter 5. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life you'll groan. When your flesh and body are spent, you will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sin hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die led astray by their own great folly. As we approach at Proverbs chapter five, I think there are probably a couple of things that we need to just address before we dive in. And here's the first. I think we need to acknowledge that the church has at times misread passages like Proverbs 5 in ways that are very damaging. Uh, There has been in uh, church history and in not very distant church history a tendency to read passages like Proverbs 5 in a very misogynistic way, in a way that almost treats uh, women as essentially temptresses Uh, as um, responsible for the moral failings of men as the problem. Now, I want to say unequivocally that Proverbs chapter 5 does not present that sort of view of women in general or women in particular. The book is written to a young man. That's the framing. That's the kind of conceit of the book. 
uh, and both wisdom and folly and sin and danger are presented in female form. Who are you going to fall in love with? That's the sort of idea in the book. Uh, And here in chapter five, the question for this young man is, who are you going to fall in love with? Who are you going to give yourself to? Where are you going to seek solace and satisfaction and companionship? Uh, The woman, the adulterous woman here in chapter five is incredibly dangerous, but not because she is some kind of um, power like a, a siren Uh, in the old Greek myths who can sort of overwhelm the poor defenseless man, she's just presented as a willing accomplice in sin, as a willing partner in behavior that is ultimately destructive, that behavior being adultery. So please don't read Proverbs 5 and think, oh, here we go again. Women are the baddies. They're absolutely not. That's not the point of Proverbs 5. And it's not a theme that you'll find within the scriptures. Men and women together have turned away from the Lord, have fallen into sin, have fallen into folly. And it is the young man here who is addressed as the one at risk of being utterly stupid and destroying everything he might work for by committing adultery. That's the first thing. Uh, And the second is, and if you lived through the 1960s and the sort of craze for Freud and all of that sort of thing, well, actually, probably if you live now, then you might think, oh, here we go again. On the one hand, a sort of Christian obsession with sex. Uh, On the other hand, the sort of very negative view of sex that the Bible and the church is thought to hold. Now, just look with me at verses 15 to 19 and tell me that what is in view in Proverbs 5 is a negative view of sexuality. All this talk of uh, running water and drinking water from your your own uh, well and not letting your springs overflow in uh, public, but your fountain being blessed, that is talking about this young man's sexuality uh, and the blessing that it can bring. And actually, he's instructed... And it's striking, isn't it, to be sexually intoxicated with his wife. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Actually, that's an incredibly positive view of sexuality, isn't it? In fact, what it's saying is that the the cure for adultery, and we'll come back to this because this is not uncomplicated in a, a broken world, but the, the, the sort of prevention for adultery, in part, it's, you know, stay away from the place of danger uh, in verse 8. But actually, the heart of it is to have appropriate sexual fulfillment, intoxication with the wife of your youth for this young man. 
Uh, and though figures within the church have sometimes adopted uh, attitudes to sexuality that are negative in a way that the scripture isn't, there are lots of myths about the church and sex. So for instance, uh, when you hear the word Puritan, um, what do you hear? 17th century kind of you know, English religious zealots, maybe, okay, you think that. And how do you think the Puritans related to sexuality? Do you think they were negative about it? I came across a fascinating little anecdote uh, today, uh, and that is that in the 1950s, a historian of the 17th century tried to republish some of the things that the Puritans had written about sexuality within marriage. Uh, and the American um, publishers of, of historical journals refused to publish it because it was too fruity. Uh, in fact, you know, the Puritans didn't have a downer on sex at all. They, were, they had an enthusiasm about it that was actually uncomfortable in liberal 1950s America. Let me try and explain. It's been nice to see the sun today, hasn't it? And, you know, but it's dark and cold. And I am. Um, there's nothing on a sort of winter evening that is more cheerful than a lovely fire. provides light and warmth, brightens up a room. And I thought, do you know what? It's dark and cold outside. See how I'm stacking the logs to get lots of air in between them? They'll burn nicely. And I've got some fire lighters. Right, I'll just chuck a bit of that in there. There we go. And I've got my blowtorch. Is there a warden here to save me? <laughs> I'm not sure there is, actually. Oh, dear. Okay, right then. <laughs> right. How do I feel about fire? How do you feel about fire? Is fire a good thing? Yes, it is. Is fire a beautiful, warming, joy-bringing thing? Yes, absolutely it is. In fact, without fire, we wouldn't have lights on in here because it's fire of one kind or another that in general provides uh, our electricity still, despite the great wind farm off the coast there. It's fire that drives our motor vehicles, our jet planes, gets us to where we want to be. Welcome back, Roger. <laughs> Fire enables us to keep our homes warm. It enables us to cook food that would otherwise be poisonous to us, but treated with fire is delicious and life-giving. But if I put my torch to that, I would be putting us all in danger, wouldn't I? Okay? And what we find here in Proverbs 5, and what we find through the whole of the Bible is a view of sexuality that is like that view of fire. It is good. It's a gift from God. It brings life and joy. 
And indeed, it's an even better gift than fire, as we'll talk about in a moment. But where fire in a fireplace is good, on the sofa or on a table at the front of church, it's not so great. In fact, it's dangerous, it's destructive. And the same is true of sexuality. And in all kinds of ways, we, we know that, and our culture even knows that. That actually, if you abuse sexuality, if you abuse someone else's sexuality, you do great harm. And there is actually more stigma attached to crimes in this area than any other. It's even safer to be a policeman in prison than to be someone who has committed a sexual crime. We recognize its potential to do great harm, but we also recognize the goodness of the gift, and its incredible power. Um, and the passage will open up for us pretty easily in a moment, but just to sort of set the scene for all of this, perhaps you'd turn back with me to Genesis chapter 2. In fact, uh, Genesis chapter 1, that's on the same page, page 4 uh, of the Church Bibles. So we've reached the sixth day in chapter 1, verse 27. God has created the world, uh, and now he is kind of coming to the, to, to, to the sort of fulfillment of his creation in, the, in making human beings in his own image. And listen to what the writer of Genesis says. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There is a mission for humanity in the world. And there is a way that they are going to fulfill that mission of, of, of ruling for God in this world that he has made. And the power given to the man and the woman, or one of the powers at least given to the man and the woman, that enables them to do that is the power to reproduce. What's the first thing they're told to do? What's the first command given to a human being in the Bible? Fill the earth. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. So right back at the creation, the creation of humanity in God's image, male and female, and the power that comes from the union of male and female in being fruitful and filling the earth and subduing it, is right at the heart of the human mission to represent God to his creation. In other words, sexuality is vital to the building of the kingdom of God here, back in Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? 
How else are they going to fill the earth? How else are they going to be fruitful? But then when you look down to uh, chapter 2, and this is all still before the fall, so we're on to page 5 now, before anything's gone wrong in the world, God gives meaning to sexuality that goes beyond simply reproduction. Uh, And um, I'll start reading at chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So in a world without sin, there was no shame to nakedness. There was no shame associated with sex. And Jesus quotes uh, Genesis 2.24 in his teaching on divorce and on his teaching on why people shouldn't simply be able to break up a marriage. Because this union of man and wife makes them into something they weren't before. They become one flesh. And it's right there in the nature of the creation. Which is why sex is so incredibly powerful. Which is why just about anything other than financial products, it seems, I did a bit of reading in the sort of advertising world just to sort of check that I was right about this, but basically anything apart from a bank will be sold to you using sex in advertising. Not that every advert uses it, but pretty much any product other than financial products benefits from the using of sexual imagery in advertising. Absolutely powerful drive. And it's such a powerful drive that people are constantly seeking it. One in five searches on mobile devices, internet connected mobile devices. One in five searches is a search for pornography. It's astonishing, isn't it? There's this incredibly powerful drive. Human sexuality has enormous power. And partly that is because of the creation, because of the need for humanity to fill the earth, uh, because of this powerful relationship. But it's striking, this second thing, isn't it? This, this union of the man and the woman, this bringing of them together in a kind of way in which there were two and now there's one, that doesn't seem to have much to do with filling the earth. And yet, 
It is a picture that runs right the way through Scripture, and it is uh, something that Proverbs 5 foregrounds very much, the, the, the sort of value and the power of marriage as a relationship. Now, the reason for that becomes increasingly apparent as you leave the Old Testament and move into the New. One of the words that Jesus uses for himself, himself, one of the names he calls himself in the Gospels and explains what his disciples are doing and, and, and what is going on with his coming into the world is he says, I am the bridegroom. Bible ends with a marriage. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 actually tells us that marriage points beyond itself to something else. So this is, uh, so if you'd like to look it up with me, it's page 1176 in the church Bibles, Ephesians 5. And I'll start reading at verse 30. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. But that's so striking, isn't it? Paul points to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and he says, in the end, that's really about Jesus. And the ultimate point of marriage was to point to Jesus, to point to the unbreakable, fully committed, totally identified relationship of love that Jesus enters into with his people the bringing of human beings into a relationship that intimate with God is built into the very fabric of human life in this incredibly powerful force of sexuality and the way that that is channeled into marriage within uh, the worldview of the scriptures. Marriage is the fireplace where that good gift can rightly burn. And that's basically the message of Proverbs 5 in one sense. My son, there is this incredibly powerful thing Keep it in the right place. Don't let your springs overflow in the streets. If your spring, if if your well just flows in the street, it does no one any good. Your crops will perish, you will go thirsty. But in the right place, it brings life and delight. But in the wrong place, destruction. So we just look through the passage. Uh, Chapter five, verse three. The lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smooth and gnaw, but in the end, she's as bitter as gall. Not honey at all, but the bitterest thing imaginable. 
not smoothness, but sharpness, a double-edged sword. To walk with her is to walk into the grave. To be an adulterous person is to give no thought to the meaning of life, to where you should be going. It is to wander aimlessly into the grave. And so he says, my sons, it's interesting he goes into the plural there. Not sure I quite understand why, except for, to emphasize how this is universal, this is for everyone. Don't even flirt with the idea of adultery or sexual immorality because it will destroy your honor, verse 9, your wealth, verse 10, your body, verse 11, your reputation and your place amongst God's people, verses 13 and 14. 4, verse 21, your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them, the cords of their sins hold them fast, For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. So put it another way, to sort of flirt with adultery, uh, to flirt with sexual immorality, is like flirting with heroin. Do you see that? The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. Now, I've never taken heroin. I've spoken to people who have. But my understanding is that to start with, it's fun. And you feel like you could stop whenever you want. But it gets its teeth into you pretty quickly and doesn't let go. So it is with wandering away from God's path in the area of sexuality. You might not think it's doing you any harm. But the cords of sin wrap around your ankles much quicker than you would ever think they might. So that advice to keep far from the door is wise advice, isn't it? I feel there are two other things I need to talk about. Here's the first. This young man is advised, delight in your wife. Now, some of us are married, and that is the hardest thing that's ever happened in our lives. And many of us are not married, And that is a source of great grief to us. Either because we've lost a partner, or a partner's been unfaithful, or we've never found one. What hope is there, what joy is there in this passage, in the scriptures, for you? And I think in the end it comes down to Ephesians 5, to the way that the scriptures show us that in the end sex itself is not the goal, is not 
the main thing. It's a picture that points to the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that you were made for and that he gave his life for. The most fulfilled human being who ever lived, the wisest and the best, died at the age of 33, a virgin. His name was Jesus. And he died unmarried so that the church could be his bride. So if in your life there is a sort of gaping ache and you think, if only, if only I could find someone. If you have Jesus, you have found someone. And you are in a relationship that will last not just for the rest of your life, but into eternity and will fulfill you and delight you in a way that no earthly lover ever could. And marriage is a wonderful gift, but at its best, all it does is point away from itself to Jesus. He is the one who ultimately can meet your needs. He is the one who can make you who you were made to be. And so for those of us who are married and fairly happy about it, that's an important caveat, isn't it? Your husband, your wife, was never going to be your savior. Was never going to make you whole. Was never going to be everything you needed in the world. Nonetheless, it is wise, verses 15 to 20, to work at your marriage if you are in one, to devote yourself to it, to delight in each other, to make time for that, to make that a priority. That way your marriage will genuinely point you to the delights of the new heavens and the new earth. In some way, it will be a shadow of those things. But also, it will keep you from destructive and possibly fatal sin. Because you see, if in the end, sex is about Jesus, whenever we enter into that realm in our lives with another person or just with a computer screen, or a television. We're walking on holy ground. It is a sacred thing. And verse 21, your ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all your paths. When it comes to God, there is no such thing as secrecy or privacy no such thing as incognito mode. He knows and he sees. And your sex life matters. Sex matters. Because it was designed 
to build the kingdom of God and to point you to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts and you know the griefs that so many of us carry around sex and around marriage, things that we've done or have been done to us. And Father, I pray that in your mercy you'll bring healing to all of us as we turn to you. Heal our shame, heal our wounds, heal our consciences and give us wisdom to live in a way that honors you and to do that with our sexuality. Father, where we have strayed from your path, we pray, please, will you grant us repentance? Help us to turn away from wrongdoing. Help us to seek your mercy and find it. And Father, may we be a, a church in which your vision of the fulfilled life is seen by a world desperately seeking after fulfillment and wholeness and relationship. Lord, help us to be a place where that love and delight in the Lord Jesus is transparent and fulfilling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.